Thank you for downloading this podcast from Pardes, North America. This episode of Pardes from Jerusalem features a conversation between Rabbi Dr. Mish Hammer Kosoy and Rabbi Dr. Daniel Reifman on Parashat Baha Alotacha. For the latest episode of Pardes from Jerusalem, please visit elmod.pardes.org. And now, here is Rabbi Dr. Mish Hammer Kosoy and Rabbi Dr. Daniel Reifman. excited to be here with the fantastic Talmud faculty member and leader of the Kolel, Daniel um, Reifman. And uh, I don't know who you bribed to get us this Parsha. The truth is, it's a fabulous Parsha. Uh, I'm here with Mishamer Kasoy, Rabbi Dr. Mishamer Kasoy, who is the director of the year program at Pardes. And we're going to be discussing Parsha at Bahalotcha. Um, I find Parsha Bahalotcha to be an enormously rich Parsha, Mish. Uh, there are just so many topics, and uh, I know I had a hard time deciding what to talk about, and uh, I'm sure you did as well. Um, it strikes me that Parshat Bahalotcha is also the beginning of a pattern that we see throughout the book of Bamidbar, where there are legal sections combined with stories. And we're going to see this over and over again in the next couple of Parshiot and the next couple of weekly portions. So I actually wanted to start talking about the relationship between law and narrative as we see it in uh, Parshat Behalotcha, and then we can talk a little more broadly about law and narrative in the book of Bamidbar as a whole. Wow, so I see we're not only going to dig deep into this one little text, but we're going to have a whole new understanding of the Sefer Bamidbar and perhaps all of Judaism. Basically. Uh, I'm all about the big and the small. Um, the, the, the most interesting fusion of law and narrative comes in uh, chapter 9, where we find that the Jews are commanded to bring the Korban Pesach, the Pesach sacrifice. They're only a year out of Egypt, uh, and now God tells them, you know what, even though you're in the desert, you haven't come to the Promised Land yet, you're going to offer the Pesach sacrifice again as a commemoration and celebration of the exodus from Egypt. What happens is that a group of people come forward and say, hey, we are ritually impure, we are tmeim lanefesh, we've come into contact with a corpse, and therefore we're not going to be able to bring the sacrifice with the rest of the nation. What are we supposed to do? And Moshe does something very interesting here where he takes the question and brings it to God and says, what am I supposed to do? The, what's fascinating about the story is that this is really one of the very few moments that we find in the Torah of the creation of new law. When Moshe brings this question to God, God responds, even though we're in the middle of a story, God responds by issuing a new law. We have kind of divine legislation going on right here in the middle of the story. And what God prescribes is the institution of Pesach Sheni, the second Pesach, where a month after uh, Pesach, a month after the 14th of Nisan, when you're supposed to bring your Pesach sacrifice to eat it the night of the 15th of Nisan, which is the Seder night, um, God says, you know what, the 14th of Er will be a do-over date for those who couldn't make it. Um, it's a fascinating institution, uh, both 
uh, in and of itself. And also, uh, I always think about this in terms of modern Israeli culture, where there's always a do-over <laughs> date. There's always uh, what we call a moed bet. It's the best and the worst of Israeli culture. Yep, but I yep, love yep. that God gives us second chances, even if the Israeli school system does it too much. Um, so it's a fascinating intersection between the story and the law, where the story essentially creates new law. Um, and, and what's particularly uh, touching for me is that these are people who come forward and they say, hey, we're being left out. We're being excluded from this particular mitzvah. They care so much about bringing the sacrifice um, and about what it means for, for, for them to be able to participate in this national event. Um, and they say, it can't be that we're going to be the only ones who are going to be left out. And God responds by saying, yes, I'm going to find a way for you to participate within the structure of the law. Diversity, equity, inclusion, Bible style. I, yes, yes, that's right. That's right. Um, there is a statement here, I think, about um, how halacha responds to marginalized groups, um, about the way that halacha creates spaces for people to, uh, to, to, to have second chances and second opportunities. Again, God doesn't say, uh, oh, even though you're ritually impure, go ahead, bring the sacrifice, meaning the law is still enforced, that if you're ritually impure, you can't bring a sacrifice. You can't go into the sacred space of the tabernacle or eventually the temple. Mm. Um, but this becomes, uh, this, this becomes a, a, a law for all. To, they, they're still within the structure of the law, but then this institution of Pesach Sheni becomes a law for all time. What strikes me, I think, about the relationship between law and narrative here is that the, the story is something that happens at one point in time. And then the law that it creates is something that exists for all time that is uh, on the books in perpetuity. Mm -hmm. And you see something here about the relationship between narrative and law in terms of their relationship to time. Narrative is something very specific that happens in one moment in time to one particular group of people at one point in history, in one place. And law is something that transcends time. Law is eternal, law is universal. It applies to anybody who's going to be in this particular circumstance of not being able to bring the sacrifice on the 14th of Nisan. And is this something that, in your mind, is unique to this passage? It, well, so there are a number of other episodes in Tanakh where we find kind of the divine legislation of new law. Um, but the one that, that is most similar to this one actually happens uh, towards the end of the Book of Bamidbar, um, in the very famous story of um, the Daughters of Tzavchat. Oh, I love that story. I know, it's I know. It's good you're bringing well, it up now, too. Yeah, so, so <laughs> I identify with Tzavchat. Tzavchat is a man who had five daughters. Mm. I have five daughters. Um, Tzavchat tragically dies in the wilderness. You're um, not going to do what he did. I know well, you're not. <laughs> that part I don't identify with. <laughs> but the part I really identify with is that Tzavchat's daughters are not uh, wallflowers. They come forward and they say, we are being left out of the, the, the law. The law is not making space for us. And in this case, the law that is excluding them is the law of inheritance of the land of Israel. Um, the, the law is that male children, sons, inherit their fathers. 
um, and they come forward and say, hey, our father had no sons, uh, or is our family not going to have any portion of the land of Israel, right? Our father, uh, the, the, the line of our father is essentially going to be cut off. How can we be left out? And they use exactly the same phrase that the people who come to petition uh, for Pesach Sheni use, lama nigara, why should we be excluded? Wow, so it's two times diversity, equity, inclusion, and in both times, the the call for inclusion comes from the marginalized community. Right. It's very, it's very grassroots. It's very kind of bottom up. And I say that it's a famous story because it's very frequently invoked um, as a kind of harbinger or or, or model for uh, a feminist um, in- inclusion in Judaism, uh, and particularly in areas of Jewish law that women have traditionally been left out in. Um, there is a whole discussion, uh, if we want to get into a little bit more technical halacha, uh, of women's inheritance in general, right? There's an exception made for Benot Slavchad, who happened to be in a family with only daughters, but what happens if there's a family with daughters and sons? Technically, only the sons inherit, um, but throughout the course of Jewish history, um, halachic authorities have addressed this inequity in various ways and made sure the daughters are not left with nothing uh, when, when of their father's estate. Wow, so how does this, what does this have to do with the, this is a frame for the book of Bamidbar one right at the beginning, one right at the end, right. is that so what you're you, suggesting? So, right. so you, could, you could think of it that way. Um, again, there's a lot in between, and, and I don't want to kind of reduce the book of Bamidbar to, to you know, this, this is the only framing uh, mechanism for the whole book. But, but I think there's something evocative about the fact that these two stories are kind of situated at, at, at kind of, as maybe kind of bookends for the book of Bamidbar. Um, when, you, when you think about the theme of the book, of, one of the themes of the book of Bamidbar is the development of, uh, of B'nai Israel, of the children of Israel as a nation, right? And, and, and the sense that throughout the book of Bamidbar, they gradually come to learn to take initiative, to step forward, to, to, uh, to, to have their own unmediated relationship with God. Um, and in some sense, that's what these stories are about. They're about people coming forward, um, understanding that the law has not made space for them. They could have said, okay, you know, that, so be it. Um, the law doesn't necessarily include everybody and doesn't necessarily make exceptions for all circumstances, but they're so desperate to be included in these events of, of, that are really very formative in terms of national identity that they can't sit on the sidelines. They come forward and say, hey, what about us? Um, we can kind of take it maybe one step further and say um, that Pesach, which is the issue, the legal issue in the first story, is about the connection of the Jewish people to its past. And therefore, it, it kind of anchors the, wow. the book of Bamidbar towards the, 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 what comes before it in, in the Chumash. Um, and with Benot Slavchad, it's about the Jewish future. It's about going into the land, and therefore it anchors that the end of the Book of Mamidbar into into what follows, what comes afterwards in uh, in Tanakh. Wow! So we need each other. We need everybody, and it's up to us to take the initiative to make sure that we're included. I I, I, I think that's a very strong message of the Book of Mamidbar and these two stories in particular, and it's particularly this kind of fusion of, of, of narrative and law and the way that stories yield new laws uh, that, that I think is, is very inspirational in that sense. 
you, you work on that a little bit about stories of law and how those two things come together. Is that somehow related to semiotics in your... <laughs> I wasn't going to say the S word, but I, semiotics, the study of sign systems, is, a, is, a, is an area that I study. And, and narrative and law can be thought of as two kind of different kinds of sign systems, of discourses. Uh, if I recall correctly, that's going to be a major theme at Pardes next year, where Pardes is celebrating its 50th anniversary, and we talk about the stories that bind us together. Um, so maybe we'll have a chance to talk about that uh, in, over the course of the next year. Wow. Thank you so much, Daniel. That is really interesting. So tell me what part of the Parsha you found most gripping. Well, I, the truth is, I think that if you hadn't given me a heads up that you were going to talk about Pesach, Shania, I would probably still be flailing in the sea of so many good things to talk about. Um, but as you were thinking about um, the grassroots initiative that are, fa that are framing the Book of Numbers, I thought, wow, that reminds me of... Uh, of the democratic roots of our Jewish tradition, which I think have their origin in this week's Parsha. Um, in chapter 11, there's a, uh, oh, it's, you know, one of those stories of chapter 11 of uh, B'nai Israel, the Jewish people are whining. It starts off with whining. They're whining like children, bratty children. They want meat. They're sick of manna. God, why are you only making food rain down on us every day? And Moshe hears the cries, and they're crying in clans, like each of them having their own protest group. And Moshe, I guess he was maybe hungry too, because um, he, as they're getting each other riled up, he totally loses his his patience, like parents at their wit's end kind of do sometimes. And, and he says... Um, I'll even just read it in English. Moshe heard the people weeping, every clan apart, each person at the entrance of his tent, and the Lord was angry, and Moshe was distressed. And Moshe said to the Lord, Why have you dealt ill with your servant? What are you doing to me? And why have I not, why don't you favor me? Have, have you, why, that you have laid the burden of all this people upon me? Did I conceive all, all this people that, did I bear them that you should say to me, carry them in your bosom as a nurse carries an infant? Um, hi. It's fascinating. There's there's this explicit parental imagery here of, of like the the crying infant in Moshe as the as the mother. Oh my gosh, that, it's correct, and it, that by the way develops as Bnei Israel grows older through the whole of the parsha. But here, this very like, what am I? You're humanity onik. I'm not. That's not my job. Um, and, and he also does what we sometimes do, which is throws his arms up and says, I can't do it. God, either kill me or fix it. Um, and look, that's a tough statement in and of itself. Um, but God proposes a solution. He says, God says, bring me 70 elders to the tent of the meeting and stand with you. And then, and, and he says, um, and there's like a little, there's a response to the meat problem, which is the quail, but I'm going to bracket that for now. And then just like what happens in verse 24 um, is that Moshe goes out and he, do, he says what, he does what God says, tell, tells him to do, to bring the 70 elders. He gathers the 70 elders, um, the 70 of the people's elders and stations them around the Oamoed, around the tent. And then God comes down in a cloak, speaks to him and he, 
God draws upon the spirit that was on Moshe and put it on the 70 elders. And when the spirit rested upon them, they spoke in Exodus, it says, which is translated here as, they spoke in ecstasy but did not continue. And then it says, or prophesied. You get to decide. The, um, this is the JPS translation. Two, uh, two men, one named Eldad and the other named Medad, had remained in the camp, and yet the spirit rested upon them, but they were amongst... Um, the, um, they were they were amongst those recorded, but they had not gone out of the tent. And they spoke in ecstasy in the camp. And the youth ran out and told Moshe, Eldad and Medad are acting prophet in the camp. And Yehoshua ben Nun says, Adoni Moshe Klaim. My Lord Moshe, do restrain them, do something about it, put them in jail, stop them, something. But Moshe says, are you wrought up on my account? Would that, wouldn't it be great if all of the Lord's people were prophets that the Lord put God's, that God would put God's spirit upon them? Um, and Moshe re-enters the tent, the camp together with the elders of Israel. So, so in a sense, there are really two stages to the story, right? The, the solution that God proposes in a sense is to take some of the um, the, the spirit, the ruach of, of prophecy that, that he had used to, uh, to inspire Moshe, um, and he spreads it to the other elders who are gathered. But then there's the second part where you have Eldad and Medad, who are these figures who are, haven't been identified yet, who were also prophesying in the camp. And then there's this whole kind of ado about what's going on there and whether they should be prophesying. Exactly. So I want to like start on the first part of the story, which is the part that like, which becomes halacha. It's not quite the same as your part, your story, your paradigm where law is evoked from the people, but rather this sets a precedent, this shivim ish, the elders become the model for the court system of Israel in Masechet Sanhedrin, um, that the Sanhedrin, the great, the high Dean of the Jewish people, should have 71 members, 70 elders, plus Moshe on top of them, and then under them, of, with a different origin, 23, uh, courts of 23, and then courts of three. So this essentially becomes a precedent for the, the, the future institutions of Jewish law. Exactly. This is the model for... Um, for the Jewish people and their governing institution. And for me, the, uh, for me, this is symbolic of a, of a, of democ of democracy in the Jewish people. So, so, so that's fascinating. You said democracy before, and I, and, and like, I, I kind of noted that for myself because typically when we think about, I don't know, the development of human culture or at least maybe, I don't know, Western civilization, we associate democracy with Greek culture. We associate monotheism um, when, and religion with Judaism, but we associate uh, democracy and government and, 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 and all of that, all of those aspects of what has become modern Western culture to Greece. And you're suggesting, no, there's, there's really like a core of democracy here in the Chumash. I think, you look, the word for the Sanhedrin is that that's a Greek word. So I'm not saying that there's no influence Fair there. Fair enough. Okay. But, they, but, the, but 
the precedent is is here in the Torah, which is this understanding that there should be some kind of power sharing, that it shouldn't all belong to Moshe. There should be 70 elders. And I think, look, 70 is a key number. It's the 70 nations, it's the 70 languages, it's the 70 faces of Torah, which I think is especially relevant here. This idea that we should have represented amongst us all 70 faces of truth and 70 faces of 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 God and like you could say that the 70 symbolizes totality within diversity and multiplicity that that right so that that's fascinating because we think of democracy as kind of like um we think of democracy as something political in the sense that uh there are competing interests and and democracy is kind of um the the what was it Winston Churchill said the least the least terrible form of government. <laughs> yeah, he, he but, said, he said, the... Oh, you have the quote. Uh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but he didn't print it out. But he said, uh, I'll tell it to you, yeah. They, um, this is the worst for, form of government except for the other ones. Hold on. Oh, yeah. Right, with the exception yeah, of other, every, every, every other form of government tried. tried yes. No, but, but, you're, but essentially you're saying there's something ideal about this. In other words, it's not just about competing interests. It's about understanding that no one individual has a monopoly on truth and no one individual, none of these individuals who are getting prophecy have the full prophecy and therefore you need all 70 or 71 of them to, 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 to understand the totality of, of, of God's will. Exactly. They're the entire spectrum of voices unified in a single organ of ultimate truth and the tradition recognizes that truth is going to be complex and multivalent and that every voice has got to be included. And so then the thing that and this is emphasized, actually, you know, like in the Mishnah then goes on to talk about the 23. We don't, we don't have time to get into the 23, but that there where there's an Eidah Matzelet and an Eidah Shofetzet, the, the, the lower court, the capital court, has to have 10 which are going for the prosecution and 10 that are arguing for the defense as if, like, we can't possibly get to truth unless we're making sure that everything's there. Right, unless you have, unless you, you, you institutionalize competing voices already ahead of time. You That's make right. sure that there are people who are, are kind of arguing both sides of the issue. Right, so the 70s amazing, and then Eldad and Medad come in there. And what the heck, that's like the, there, there why are these two people out there? And for Chazal, for the, for the sages, this was, this was essential to them because these two, they're, they're, it says in the text in this sort of funny way, they were recorded. I don't know. We don't know what that means. They were recorded. So the, ra the rabbis understood that they were selected and that there was actually, there's 12 tribes and each one had six representatives. Right. And yet there are only 70. So then these two were the ones who were kind of supposed to be there but left out but still got included somehow anyway. Exactly. So not only do we have that we have to have the full range of truth, but we also have to make sure, again, diversity, equity, inclusion. Everybody has to have a representatives, someone that they can turn to from their tribe who understands their story, who understands their narrative, and makes sure that it's represented in the Sanhedrin. What, what do you make of the fact that Yehoshua is so upset about the fact that they're prophesying in the camp? Why, why, why is that kind of threatening or subversive, such that he says to Moshe, 
You have to jail them. You have to restrain them. I think what's amazing is that Moshe isn't threatened, right? <laughs> because the very we understand that the idea of power coming from the God's God's presence is resting on the seventy elders. They are they're speaking God's words, and that the very notion that there could be an expression of truth that's outside the Sanhedrin is 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 potentially subversive is is potentially threatening and moshe's so yoshua is threatened and moshe says no, no no this is this is what's supposed to be right interesting and that is fascinating it's part of this whole uh, reflection yeah so i love this because it's another case of this interplay between uh between story and law and the sense of broad i think it just builds on where you were broad participation um in the functioning of the nation is essential to smooth functioning of the state and that the responsibility is on the people. If we have another minute, let me let me let me push you a little bit on this. Because sure. this whole story, as you noted, comes out of a, a kind of crisis of leadership for Moshe, right? You mm-hmm. you could, you know, you've depicted it, and I think there's a lot to recommend this as as a kind of ideal state. That, that there's supposed right. to be this diversity of voices and multiplicity of perspectives. Um, and yet it doesn't start that way. And it only comes when, when Moshe has this kind of crisis of leadership where he doesn't feel that he's able to, 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 to lead. Um, how, how does that fit in to the, the model that you're developing, the sense that, that this only comes about uh, as, as, as a kind of uh, as, as a kind of concession, maybe, to the fact that Moshe can't be the, the one ideal leader that he would like to be or that he thought he was supposed to be. Wow, I love your question, Jan. I think maybe there could be many answers. I would turn to our listeners and suggest they bring it up at the Shabbos table, but I'll throw one thing out there, which is, like, maybe government is not meant to be perfect and that there's meant to be some give and take between the people and the authority and some unrest and that's the nature of government to be a little bit inefficient um, because that's part of what that's the nature of democracy democracy is inefficient Daniel but what it means is that multiple voices are heard and it's worth it to have everyone be included for us not to come down with a heavy line I like that. I like that approach. But yes, I would open it to listeners and, and uh, curious to hear what other people might have to say if you have a way of contacting us and sharing your own terror with us. You absolutely can. Please at, uh, send us an email at mish at pardes.org.il, M-E-E dot, M-E-E-S-H at pardes.org.il. Um, Daniel. What are you hoping everyone's going to take home from this to your to their Shabbos table? I want them to think about the book of Bamidbar and the themes that we've talked about because it's such a rich book and there are so much uh, in what we've talked about that kind of repeats over and over again in the book, um, both the interplay between law and narrative um, and uh, this kind of dynamic of leadership and power and how Moshe responds and how God responds and how the people emerge as their own, uh, their, 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 their own independent entity. And I think there are a lot of messages in the book of Bamidbar for our own times. I think it's a remarkably contemporary book. It has uh, just a, a huge amount uh, to, 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 of relevance for modern Jewish society where there has been a kind of democratization of uh, of authority, of power, a multiplicity of voices, 
Uh, and Bamidbar, as, as a book, is about understanding what that means and understanding how we have to take responsibility for our own relationship with God. Wow. I love that, and I would just add to it the um, that there's a, I think this is for sure true at the level of the state, and I think it might also be true in interpersonal relationships and the way that we make space to make sure that we've heard all of the voices and the people in our community, the way we share power, um, and also the, the maturity that's demanded for it to work. And B'nai Israel is not in a mature state here, and, uh, and it keeps moving, and, and perhaps also just appreciation for Moshe's generosity in sharing power um, and how challenging that is for all of us. Is this you speaking as the director of the air program? <laughs> right. I could speaking to myself more than anything else. Uh, okay. It. Thank you so much for listening with us today. Thank you, Mish, and Shabbat Shalom. Thank you again for downloading this podcast, a production of Pardes North America. If you liked what you just heard, please give us a five-star review wherever you download your podcasts. Follow us on Spotify for the latest episode of Pardes from Jerusalem. Tune in next week as Rabbi Svi Hirschfeld and Ambassador Daniel Taub discuss together Parashat Shlach. Thanks for listening.